Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us on Zoom or in the building Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. For the Zoom link, please contact tikvatdirector at gmail.com or contact us on our website, tikvatisrael.com. There you can also support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and find helpful resources. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Avinu Malkeinu Avinu Malkeinu Avinu malkenu chanenu ve'anenu ki ein banu Our Father, our King, have mercy on us and answer us, for we have no good works. Literally, we have no works, we have no deeds. Ki ein banu ma'asim. We have done nothing. We have no action that makes it okay to approach you, our Father, our King. We have done nothing to justify ourselves. We have nothing to say for our actions. We have done our best, and we have come up short. We have experienced failure and we have only your mercy and kindness to lean on. So how do we deal with our failures on this Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year? We deal with our failures through atonement. Yom Kippur, of course, means the day of atonement, but what is atonement? It's one of those $5 religious words that we use and we don't quite know what it means. The Hebrew word implies a cleansing, a purging, and sometimes a covering over. The first time any root of this word appears is in the story. Does anyone know what story it appears in first? Genesis. What, what story in Genesis? No, nah, not the word itself. The idea appears in Adam and Eve, but the word appears in the story of Noah and the ark, twice in one verse, in two different forms. Ase lecha tevat atse gofer kinim taase et hateva vechafarta, vechafarta, that's the, the, the root there, kippur, ota mibait umichutz ba. Kofer, that's, it appears again there. Um, what does that mean? Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You are to make the ark with rooms and cover it, that's the first one, with pitch, which is like the, uh, the black sticky substance, both outside and inside. And the word cover and the word for the sticky substance are related to Kippur. The kippur here is a covering that protects the integrity of the vessel to bring salvation from the waters of chaos inside the boat. Without that covering, that kippur, water leaks in, 
and the whole thing is no good, and you, you drown with all those smelly animals. It's no good, right? Jewish people trying to deal with the problem of failure have developed a lot of traditions around this day. One rather fringe tradition that is largely frowned upon is called kaparot. Raise your hand if you've heard of this, this tradition, the kaparot. Okay. Uh, here is Rav Sheshna's detailed description of the ritual from around 650 CE, which is still practiced in some circles of observant Judaism today. Quote, the agent who performs it, this is on Yom Kippur, by the way, takes hold of the rooster, places his hand upon its head. Then removing his hand from the head of the rooster, he places it on the head of the person for whom the ceremony is performed and says, this rooster shall be instead of this person. This rooster shall be the substitute for this person. This rooster shall be the ransom or redemption for this person. He then swings the rooster around the head of the person for whom it is to be a substitute. Let's all swing our roosters around our heads and imagine this. Yes. All right. And then he recites the following words, a life for a life. He does this seven times. He then places his hand on the head of the rooster saying, this rooster shall go out to death instead of this person. Then he places his hand on the head of the person who is to receive atonement by saying, you, so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, shall enter into life and you shall not die. He does this three times. Then the person for whom the substitute is offered places his hand upon the head of the rooster as a sort of smicha, a laying on of hands. He lays his hand upon it and slaughters it immediately, thus in a manner following the rule prescribed for sacrifices, that the slaughtering of the sacrificial victim must follow immediately the ceremony of the laying on of hands." Unquote. Daniel ben Ezra, a scholar of Second Temple Judaism and early Christianity, writes that some families use rams to remind us of our father Isaac that was offered in his place instead of the rooster. It also reminds us of the two goats. Remember the two goats used on Yom Kippur, one being the scapegoat. He concludes his discussion of the kaparot uh, ceremony like this. This is uh, uh, ben Ezra, a quote. Despite the, the fact that the Kaparot were strongly opposed by numerous great authorities like Nachmanides, Rashba, and Rabbi Yosef Karo, it remained popular throughout the ages. This is probably due to the deep psychological impression the ritual makes on the performer and the spectators and the need to perform some act ensuring atonement. Ritual blood spilling and detachment of the entrails embodying the sins fulfilled these psychological needs better and more visibly than a mere verbal recounting of the temple ritual." Unquote. We need to do something about our failures in preparation for Yom Kippur. And we Jews have gone to extreme measures in search of the assurance of atonement, that is, cleansing and a covering over salvation from the waters of chaos and life, forgiveness from God for all of our crimes. In my last sermon, I mentioned Rabbi Alan Liu and his beautiful and heartbreaking book, This is Real and You Are Completely Unprepared, The Days of Awe as a, trans as a Journey of Transformation. Here's another story from the chapter on Yom Kippur, and here Rabbi Allen uses the Hebrew word kapara, a word for covering, 
similar to the pitch used on Noah's Ark that I mentioned earlier, and also meaning, of course, atonement. Quote, I try my best to be a good rabbi, but I'm working with very limited equipment, and sometimes I let people down. Someone who had read my first book once told me that while, he, while they enjoyed reading it very much, they thought the book might have been too honest. They thought it really made me look like a schlamazel, that classic figure of Jewish literature who is the constant victim of bad luck and his own remedial bungling. He wondered what some congregants would think about having such a schlamazel for a rabbi. A lot of people want their rabbi to be a father, like Robert Young in Father Knows Best, and if not actually God, at least a stand-in for God. I know a lot of rabbis who spend their life's energy pretending to be these things. I don't have that kind of energy. I try to make the best of what I have by offering up my schlamazelhood to others in the hope that this may illuminate their own inner schlamazel and help them to come to terms with it. Maybe then they won't spend so much of their life's energy defending against the truth of their own lives. But I am a schlamazel, and sometimes I let people down. Sometimes I let them down because it just can't be helped. Sometimes I just can't get to them. I find myself doing triage all the time, and sometimes I let people down because there may be a dozen more pressing concerns that stand between their need and my ability to reach them. But sometimes I let people down because I simply blow it. I don't do what I'm supposed to do for one reason or another, or for no reason whatsoever that I'm able to fathom. I just fail. Sometimes the consequences of my failure can be quite serious. There's a young couple in my congregation I like very well. I admire them. I converted the woman, and I married them several years ago. It was a beautiful wedding, too, at a lovely winery up in Sonoma County, a day, like all wedding days, full of hope and fond dreams. But then they had a horrible tragedy. The child they had been expecting was born dead, and the mother had a perilous time of it herself for a while. Her husband called me a few days after this all had taken place. It so happened that I had the flu at the time he called. I told him I didn't want to come to the hospital just then because I was afraid I would make his wife sick, but I promised to come in a few days when I was better. But you know what? I never went. I still don't know what happened. I simply don't remember. Maybe in my weakened condition, I just didn't want to face such a painful situation. Or maybe there was too much on my plate, phone calls, meetings, and people trooping in and out of my office in various states of distress, and I just couldn't keep track of it all. Or maybe my memory was failing. Or maybe I, realized I really was just a callous jerk who only pretended to care about people. In any case, for one reason or another, I forgot all about this couple and their terrible tragedy. I recovered from my flu a few days later, and the whole thing, as serious, as grave as it was, the whole thing just slipped through my mind, just fell through the cracks, and I never even thought about it again until months later when I learned the couple had left the synagogue in disgust, hurt, and in great pain. They were devastated by my not showing up, crushed. The husband told me it was the biggest religious disappointment of his life. I called them up to apologize, and of course, they accepted my apology and forgave me. They are very fine people. But believe me, this is written in the book of my life. It is written indelibly, and it's sealed as well. I could ask them for forgiveness, but I couldn't undo 
I couldn't ask them to undo what had happened. No one could do that. No one, no, nor could anyone undo the hurt they experienced or the disillusionment of the young woman. I had converted her to Judaism. And more significantly, from my point of view, no one could change this judgment of who I really was. Your feet take you to where you really want to go, the young man told me when I called him to apologize. And I knew he was right. I might think of myself as a great, compassionate healer. I might think of myself as a caring, giving person, always there for people when they need me. I might tell story after story, casting myself in this role. But this was the unavoidable truth of my life. This was what was written in the book of my life. This is where my feet had taken me, or more precisely, where they had failed to take me. So why even bother to ask for forgiveness? Why make kapara? That behavior needs to be covered over precisely because it will always be out there. Their hurt needed to be covered over. It was like an exposed wound, an open sore, and it needed to be covered over by an acknowledgement that they had been hurt, by a validation of what they had experienced, and by a corroboration from me that I had hurt them. Then they could begin to heal from it, or at least from the part that I was responsible for. Then they could begin to let go of it. And I needed to cover this act of thoughtlessness over with a new resolve. It will always be out there. It will always be a part of the story of who I am, only a part, to be sure. There have been many occasions when I was there for people. More than once, I've gotten out of bed in the middle of the night to go sit with strangers at the hospital. But that's the part of the story I like to tell. Now there's another part, a part I don't want to look at so much. Only by responding differently when this sort of thing happens in the future can I cover it with another story, one that might change its meaning yet again." Unquote. Dealing with our failures means dealing with the pain of our mistakes and seeking forgiveness, acknowledging and sitting with our mistakes for a moment, and then seeing them in light of the good news of Yeshua. There's an idea in Judaism that death somehow brings atonement, brings a covering. The death of the two goats on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is no accident. We have to try to connect our failures with the death of the Messiah in order to find a way forward. This is the hard part of Yom Kippur. So is Yom Kippur in the Gospels? What do you think? Is it there? I found a blog post from Pastor Jason Michelli, which explores this question. I found it very insightful. Because he is within the Christian tradition, Pastor Jason uses the terms Jesus and Christ, which I have left as written. Quote, the ancient church fathers believed the book of Hebrews was long, one long sermon on Leviticus 16, part of which we read this morning. That was my comment. Leviticus 16 details God's instructions to Moses for the Jewish Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur revolves around the high priest, the person who represents all of God's people, the only person who can ever venture beyond the temple veil and into the Holy of Holies, where the ark and presence of God reside, and ask God to remove his people's stains. Remember, in the Hebrew Bible, God is a consuming, refining fire. As much as God loves us, and as much as we love God, in the Hebrew Bible, no one can come near God's presence and live. So when the high priest enters the Holy of Holies, he risks his own life. 
and because of that, every detail of the ritual matters. The high priest must bathe the right way. The high priest must dress the proper way. The high priest must make the prescribed sacrifices for his sin and his family's sin. When he's done with the preparation, the high priest brought two goats. Lots are cast so that God's will would be done. One goat is sacrificed to cleanse the temple of sin. The second goat is brought to him alive. The high priest lays both his hands on the head of the goat and confesses onto it all the iniquities of the people of Israel. The priest removes all the people's sins and places them on the goat. And after the priest's work was finished, the goat would bear the people's sin away into the wilderness. The wilderness symbolized exile and forsakenness and death. The high priest transfers the sins of the people onto the goat, and then the goat is sent away to where the wild things are. You see, Yom Kippur isn't about God wanting to punish you for your sin. Yom Kippur is about God wanting to remove your sin. Amen. The Day of Atonement is not about appeasing an angry, petty God. It's about God removing that which separates us from God and from each other and sending it away Amen. so that it's not here anymore. While the high priest prayed over the goat, the king of the Jews would undergo a ritual humiliation to repent of his people's sins. He'd be struck, his clothes would be torn, the king would ask God to forgive his people, for they know not what they do. When the high priest's work is done, the goat is loaded with all the, the sins of the people. Chances are, you wouldn't want to volunteer to lead that goat out into the wilderness. So the man appointed for the task would probably have been a Gentile, someone with no connection to the people of Israel, someone who might not even realize what they're doing is a dirty job. That Gentile would lead the goat away with a red cord wrapped around its head that symbolized sin. The name for the goat is Azazel. It's where we get the word scapegoat. Azazel means taking away. The Gentile would lead the scapegoat into exile while the people shouted, Azazel, take it away. Take our sin away so that it's not here anymore. The Gospels all say that Jesus dies during Passover feast and not Yom Kippur. But I'm not sure it's as simple as that because the Gospels tell you the calendar says Passover, but what they show you looks an awful lot like the Day of Atonement. The Gospels show you Jesus being arrested and brought to whom? The high priest. The Gospels show you the high priests accusing Jesus of blasphemy, placing what they say is guilt and sin upon him, when in reality, all they're doing is transferring their own guilt onto him. The Gospels show you Pilate's men ritually humiliating this king of the Jews, mocking him, casting lots before him, tearing his clothes off of him, and then wrapping a branch of thorns around his head until a cord of red blood circles it. The Gospels tell you that the calendar says Passover, but what they show you is Pilate holding Jesus out to the crowd, and Pilate asks the crowd what to do with this Jesus. And what do the crowds shout? Not crucify him, not at first. First the crowd shout, take him away, and then they shout, crucify him, in John 19. The Gospels tell you that the calendar says Passover, but what they show then is Jesus being led away like an animal with a red ring around his head, with shouts of Azazel ringing in the air led away from the city by Gentiles to Golgotha, a garbage dump, a barren place where some of his last words will be, my God, 
why have you forsaken me? The Gospels tell you it's Passover, but what they show you isn't a Passover lamb, but a scapegoat. This is what the Gospels show you when Jesus breathes his last, and the veil of the temple, the entrance to the Holy of Holies, is torn in two from top to bottom. This is what the Gospels show you when they quote the prophet Isaiah. He has borne our grief. He has carried our sorrow. Laid on him is the iniquity of us all. Those are all references to Leviticus. This is what the gospel shows you at the very beginning, right after the story of Jesus' birth, when John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, he's the one who, Azazel's, who takes away the sins of the world. Mm. This is what St. Paul alludes to when he says that because of Jesus Christ, nothing can now separate us from God. The gospels tell you the calendar says Passover, but what they show you is a day of atonement, unlike any other. Every year after the Azazel goat was led into the wilderness, the red cord that had been tied around the goat was taken off, and the cord that was hung upon the altar where, over the next year, Jewish tradition says that the cord would turn red from red to white, signifying God's forgiveness of the people's sin. However, according to the Talmud, approximately 40 years before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the red cord stopped turning from red to white. According to the Talmud, approximately 40 years before the temple was destroyed, the lot cast between the two goats on Yom Kippur no longer was able to discern a scapegoat. The doors into the sanctuary stopped opening at the high priest's offering on Yom Kippur. 40 years before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the whole process of atonement stopped working. It was no longer effective says the Talmud. Mm. 70 minus 40. It's about wow. 30 CE, right? In other words, around the time that Jesus was led away to Golgotha, while crowds shouted, Azazel, the atonement that had been repeated year after year since Moses met God on Mount Sinai, stopped working, says the Talmud. Or maybe you could say it stopped working because it had already worked perfectly. Maybe you could say it had worked once and for all. Amen. Unquote. Dealing with our failures means understanding the covering, the healing that comes by the strange ritual on Yom Kippur with the two goats. So let's take a closer look at what actually happens. This is from Leviticus 16. He is to take from the community of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering, and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to present the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his household. He is to take the two goats and place them before Adonai at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Then Aaron is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Adonai and the other for Azazel. Aaron is to present the goat whose lot fell to Adonai and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat whose lot fell to Azazel is to presented, be presented alive to Adonai to be used for making atonement over it by sending it into the way, away into the desert for Azazel. Next, he is to slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, bring its blood inside the curtain, and do with its blood as he did with the bull's blood, sprinkling, sprinkling it on the ark cover and on the front of the ark cover. He will make atonement for the holy place because of his, the uncleanness of the people of Israel, because of their transgressions, all their sins. 
And he's do the, to do the same for the tent of meaning, which is there in them, in them, right in the middle of their uncleanness. When he has finished atoning for the holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, he is to present the live goat. Aaron is to lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the transgressions, crimes, and sins of the people Israel. He is to put them on the head of the goat and send it into the desert with a man appointed for the purpose. The goat will bear all the transgressions away to some isolated place, and he's to let the goat go in the desert. The man who let the goat for Azazel is to wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Afterwards, he may return to the camp. So we have two goats, one released and one given to Adonai to be sacrificed, chosen by lottery. These two goats are exactly the same on the outside, but they have two different destinies, two different identities. A confession is made over the scapegoat, which is released, and the high priest washes his hands at the end of the ritual. So my question is this, if Yeshua is the fullness of Yom Kippur, where is this story of the two goats in the Gospels? Is it there? Many scholars read the following Gospel story as a Yom Kippur story, and it may be familiar to us, but this is the first year I read it through the eyes of Yom Kippur. This is from the Good News according to Matthew chapter 27. It was the governor's custom during a festival to set one prisoner free, whomever the crowd asked for. There was at the time a notorious prisoner being held named Yeshua bar Abba. So when a crowd had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to set free for you? Bar Abba? or Yeshua called the Messiah. Notice that the two men have the same first name, Yeshua. One is the Messiah, and the other is a murderer, deserving of death. One will be released, and the other sacrificed to Adonai. On the outside, the same, having the same first name. As for the inside and the destination, and the destiny of those two men, totally different. Hmm. For he understood that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting in court, his wife sent him a message. Leave that innocent man alone. Today in a dream, I suffered terribly because of him. But the head Kohanim, the head priests, persuaded the crowd to ask for Bar Abba's release and to have Yeshua executed on the stake. Which of the two do you want me to set free for you? Asked the governor. Bar-Abba, they answered. Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Yeshua, called the Messiah? They all said, Put him to death on the stake. Put him to death on the stake. When he asked why, what crime has he committed? They all shouted the louder, Put him to death on the stake. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, my hands are clean of this man's blood. It's your responsibility. Just like the high priest would on Yom Kippur, here Pilate washes his hands at the end of this annual ritual. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. 
Then he released to them Bar Abba, but Yeshua, after having him whipped, he handed over to be executed on a stake. This verse has been used, unfortunately, in different ways, and I'd like to quote from uh, David Stern because uh, I find the commentary helpful. This verse has been used to justify persecution of Jews throughout the centuries by Christians who presumed that the Jewish people had invoked a curse on themselves and on their posterity, willingly accepted responsibility for deicide. But a mob cannot speak in an official capacity for anyone, let alone for an entire people. Nor in light of Ezekiel 18 can anyone invoke a curse on unborn generations. Moreover, even were the curse effectual, Yeshua prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Besides, if the Jews were the only ones who killed him, then he didn't die for anyone else. But he died for all, not just for Jews. The righteous Messiah died for everyone who is unrighteous, which is to say, for everyone. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is a sinner. By sinning, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, killed him. Therefore, everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is guilty of Yeshua's death." Unquote. Continuing with the end of the story in the book of Matthew. The governor's soldiers took Yeshua into the headquarters building, and the whole battalion gathered around him. They stripped off his clothes and put on him a scarlet robe, wove thorn branches into a crown and put it on his head, and put a stick in his right hand. They kneeled down in front of him and, and made fun of him. Hail to the king of the Jews. They spit on him and used the stick to beat him about the head. When they had finished ridiculing him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes back on him, and led him away to be nailed to the execution stake. Matthew notes that it's a scarlet robe here, using the same Greek word as is used for the scarlet thread tied around the goat for Azazel, implying that Yeshua, the Messiah, is in some ways both goats. The scarlet cord tied around the goat sent into the wilderness, which used to turn white as a sign of God's covering over as recorded in the Talmud. As we heard from Pastor Jason, this was the sign that stopped working for some reason, according to the Talmud, around the year 30. As we afflict ourselves, as we fast and repent, and pray and deal with our failures this Yom Kippur. I want to encourage us to move through this difficult process by clinging to Messiah Yeshua. In some ways, he is both goats, and in some ways, we are both goats. But I think the person we're supposed to identify with in the gospel account is Bar Abba, Barabbas. We are Barabbas the murderer who gets released so that the punishment falls on the innocent Messiah Yeshua, bruised and beaten and humiliated and crucified in our place. It should have been us hanging on that tree. It should have been us but God made sure that it wasn't because he loves us and he brings atonement. Looking to the pain 
of the servant Messiah is the beginning of our process of atonement, our covering, our healing from our past failures. There is no other way. Amen. Avinu, our Father, we thank you that you are present with us and that you are forgiving. We thank you that we can process our past mistakes with you. And you said to come now and let us reason together, though your sins be as red as scarlet, as red as the cord tied around the Azazel goat, I will wash them and make them white as snow, as white as that cord turned every year from Moses up until around the year 30. And we thank you, Lord, that you bring us redemption and healing through Yeshua the Messiah and his death on the tree. And in his name we pray. Amen.